Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am talking to the gastrophysicist, Charles Spence. Charles is a professor of experimental psychology at Oxford University and the head of the Cross-Modal Research Laboratory, which focuses much of its attention on understanding how the human brain processes each of our different senses when we experience flavor. We discuss Charles's background as an experimental psychologist, the differences between taste and flavor, how our tongues and noses work, how flavor appreciation is learned, the impact of sound, texture, temperature, color, and weight on flavor perception, how perceived price and value impact flavor appreciation, miracle fruit, memorable eating and drinking experiences, and much, much more. This is a good one, folks. Geeky and fun to record. Charles is a font of information around flavor, and I feel like we could have gone on for hours. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Charles Spence. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Uh, thank you. Oh, absolute pleasure. <laughs> um, now, listen, I want to start by getting to the bottom of something. Flavor scientist, gastrophysicist, neurogastronomer, what is the difference between all of these things, or are they one and the same thing? <laughs> Just different branding. <laughs> Um, no, I think there is a difference. It depends where, from where, which standpoint you look at it, but uh, to many it's probably all the same, but to me it's very different. Um, and I'd say uh, I'm a gastrophysicist and a flavor scientist, but not a neurogastronomist. They're sometimes okay. called one. Uh, and the difference is sort of the neurogastronomy, that sort of uh, right there in the name is taking you into the brain and brain scanning. Um, and I don't think you can really get to understand much about flavor by sticking people in a noisy tube with a tube in the mouth and squirting liquid in. It's not like real uh, food and drink experience, and that's what I'm interested in. And hence, for the gastrophysics, it's kind of out there in the real world uh, with more naturalistic uh, experience of food and drink and the factors that affect it. Um, but probably both in neurogastronomy and the gastrophysics, uh, both use sort of flavor science um, as part of their approach. But, you know, flavor science is probably just, it's only talking about the smell, the taste. That's all flavor is, really, uh, uh, and the trigeminal hit. But it's not talking about anything else. So flavor science is kind of quite narrow. Mm. What is the flavor of something? Uh, how long does it last in your mouth? And that's it. And like, mm. the gastrophysicist is interested in the lighting, the music, the glass you drink from, the name you give something, and all the rest of it. Okay, so it, gastrophysics is sort of taking the idea of the flavors of a something and then adding in the entire experience around it and, and, and then noticing how that in turn affects the perception of flavor in the That's subject. Right. Yeah. Yep. Taste okay. or flavor or both. Um, and probably with a, yeah, a bit more of the focus on the everything else, the stuff that I think um, people have been ignoring for too long, like you know, the receptacle that you drink something from. Mm. the cutlery you eat your food with no one's ever st scientifically studied those and yet everything we've eaten drink comes via a fork or a spoon or a cup or a glass or a, uh, a can or a bottle and that has an impact on us um and it's my job to kind of show that impact and say that's part of the flavor experience might be part of the flavor narrowly defined but it's there it is there whenever we drink and hence should be studied and then kind of played with and optimized for whatever outcome one's trying to deliver Right. I definitely want to get into all of the stuff you just said in a little bit more detail. But before we go there, um, as a gastrophysicist, it would be nice to understand how one becomes a gastrophysicist in the first place. What, what's your background and what's your, also your, your childhood background and your earlier memories of flavor? Um, 
So uh, I guess gastrophysics kind of incorporates lots of different disciplines, actually. Uh, I'm a psychologist by, by, by training, uh, interested in the senses and how they interact. Uh, so initially, I was working a lot on, on, on um, paint colors and how they affect you and fragrance. Uh, I never really got to flavor until I know, quite late in the day, um, although it is a natural place to end up because flavor is probably the most multi-sensory thing we do. Mm. Um, so did you used to of- write the names for the paint colors? Those sort of emotive, um, descriptive no, no, names. We, we, yeah, but we would uh, we'd, we'd come across uh, those uh, colour consultants and the yeah. uh, and the trend forecasters, um, and so on. Um, yeah, and so always kind of interested in the psychology and the senses, and uh, slowly but surely into the world of flavour. Um, as something that it seemed lots of my colleagues weren't really studying. It's like mm. if you uh, taste and smell and food and drink, that's not really serious scientific stuff. That's I don't know, what's that, a vacation or something, rather than a, a, a something serious. I'm trying to change my colleague's mind ever since, saying even if you don't care about flavour, you should be, because that's what the brain's evolved to figure out, the flavour of stuff. What about a first sort of happy memory of smell or taste? or what, was, what did you enjoy as a child? Because I often find that the, the, the smells and tastes that are most powerfully emotive to me have some sort of link to childhood experiences. I mean, there's a reason why people like their Alco Pops taste like candy, right? They're sort of reliving some of this like reward system thing from being a kid where it was like, ah, sugar hit that smells like fake strawberries. Yeah, I, I want that. It's good. Um, do you have any kind of childhood smells or tastes that you, you really sort of linger around? Sometimes I, sometimes I get these, I, I'll smell something and I won't even be able to put a finger on what it is like you know what where where the smells come from or what is the source of the smell like the actual item that's causing that smell but i'll know that it's it's relevant to my childhood that i've smelt it before mm-hmm. as a youngster and it and it conjures up this sort of almost transportative experience back mm-hmm. to a room in a house or or like you say at school um and it's so yeah. powerful um they seem to really i feel like childhood tastes and smells seem to really sort of establish a lot of not necessarily our preference for taste because i think I and mean, you'll be able to correct me you can sort of learn some of that but they really establish a kind of a, a sort of baseline of of smells in which you can draw upon to to to, to yeah. you, well but, but, but i suppose it depends i think probably actually everything about taste and flavor uh, we learn maybe we're only brought into this world liking um sweetness and umami from the taste of amniotic fluid and, and breast milk and everything else, all the meaty, the floral, the herbal, the burnt, the creamy, the uh, Maillard reactions, all that is just learnt. We learn that those smells, we learn to like the smell of coffee, say, because it's associated with the caffeine and maybe mm-hmm. initially sugar. Um, uh, and so it's yeah, mostly uh, learnt. And, uh, and when that learning starts, some of it, I guess, starts in the womb. Some fascinating stuff that um, you know, pregnant mothers, if they're eating carrot milk, their offspring or, 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 or um, uh, is it licorice, in some parts of um, Alsace in the cuisine. And then when they are born, they'll, the newborns will orient towards the flavor or the aroma yeah. of licorice or carrot. So learning's happening there, right? You know, before we're even born, we're getting some of our flavor preferences. And, um, and there must be some sort of gap because I guess none of us actually can remember, I don't know, the, 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 the pap or the uh, baby foods yeah. that we were fed. Those must have been pretty horrible. And, and for me, um, and then some point, time, point out thereafter, we start to have conscious memories of food things and, to me, I was just doing some stuff on um, uh, sort of fairground flavors and blue, uh, blue coloring in a oh, yeah. food drink. 
Well, that's an interesting one, Blue, isn't it? Because it, I, I, I think it changes depending on where you're from, what you expect it yep. to taste of, right? Right. Uh, and, and as the years go by, I think it's changing. And probably, you know, there's also blue raspberries, kind of a, a very common of, 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 in the world of cocktails. And it should be blue curacao. It should be blue and orange. Mm. Instead, as a, as a, and you can really go back and say, well, uh, where did these things ever come from? Where did blue raspberry come from? I think that came from the fairground in the 1950s of, of blue raspberry cotton candy. Or candy yeah, floss, as I always assumed. I always assumed it was blue raspberry because strawberry already kind of had the monopoly on red, and so they were like, "Right, we need a different <laughs> color for this." So there's a restaurant near me, Paul Ainsworth's restaurant down in Cornwall, um, where he famously did a dish called uh, Taste of the Fairground, and it was it was featured on Great British Menu, um, uh, the TV show in the UK, yep. where you get lots of top celebrity chefs competing to do a banquet. And he he won uh, the dessert course. This is going back about 10 years now, I think. Um, and after winning, he then put that dish on his menu. And it was great because the the thing arrived on this little like fairground barrow cart type thing. Yeah. Um, it's a sharing dish because it was substantial in its size. So you'd share it between two or four people. And then it had all these different items on, on, the, on the barrow. Each one beautiful looking obviously all kind of sweet candy type stuff candy floss there was pop rocks there was um, a marshmallow with something through the middle of it i think i can't remember all the details of it but it you know he he hit the nail on the head with it because not only was it tasty but it was so evocative of mm-hmm. that experience of being at the fairground which very few people would associate with a negative um feeling yep. it's a place to go to have fun right and what a great way to finish a finish a menu um often desserts don't excite in the same way yeah. that the preparations at the beginning of the meal do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so something like that to finish on is genius because you then finished your dining experience and almost you kind of crescendoed into the best bit. Um, and it's and wonderful. I suppose that, that, that right there, you see, I see it these days, how many chefs and a uh, few uh, mixologists too are sort of trying to tap into that, that, that triggering nostalgia in their customers uh, it could be you know the, the, the smell of the sweet shop at Heston Blumenthal's a fat duck, mm. or the sound of the sea at uh, the same place. These sort of uh, childhood uh, experiences that the majority of people have had, and that for the majority are happy. And I guess the fairground is one of those um, with a sort of an interesting cuisine. Um, uh, uh, and uh, brandy snap would be another one that sort of we used to make in our family. So I'm from the fairground. In fact, it turns out, which is why I'm interested in part. In this and some of these sort of fairground foods and uh, and this you know, candy floss, which is appearing in again as being sort of repopularized not just in fairground desserts but also by modernist chefs and some yeah. mixologists. You think is, was that the first molecular food before molecular gastronomy was even mm. created? This yeah, is could well utterly be transformative. Right? Yeah. Breaking down it makes sugar. it much bigger, so you don't eat so much. Yeah, it's um, genius. It's amazing. When you get a candy floss machine and you make some, you can't quite believe how little sugar is required mm-hmm. to make an enormous amount of candy floss. And after you've kind of got over the satisfaction of having made it and the joy of eating it, you're then left with this sort of miserable feeling of how much you've been charged for it in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of teaspoons of sugar is two pounds, please. But uh, it's all part of the fun of the fairground, right? Mm. So I did a uh, cocktail. So after I did this Taste of the Fairground thing at Mm. Paul Ainsworth's restaurant, I ended up with my um, first cocktail book that I wrote. I did a cocktail of a similar style. And what I did was I took a Negroni and broke it down into its component parts. That's obviously pretty easy to do, Campari, Sweet Vermouth, Mm. Gin, and then transformed each of those ingredients into 
a different kind of fairground type food. So I did um, uh, Campari candy floss, which is really yep. easy to do because you just reduce the Campari down into sugar and then load it in a candy floss machine. And you get this wonderful, like bittersweet candy floss. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. There's actually a bartender called Paul Tvaro who, who owns a bar called Lounge Bohemia, who was the first person I encountered who, who did this, the, the bars in London. Um, and then, yeah, I, I tried to make popping candy, but it's surprisingly difficult to do. Yeah. You need like, you need like high pressure equipment and things like yeah. that, don't you? So I well, you, can buy, the, you, can, you can buy big pots of it, can't they? Yeah, well, you I can. Suppose. I wanted to flavor it though. And I don't, I actually spray something on it, couldn't you maybe? Yeah. Um, anyway, I ended up making like um, sherbet instead with the, I think I did vermouth sherbet and we did some gin marshmallows and bits and pieces. And yeah, it's fun. You were talking about how we, learn all of our flavor preferences and i guess that's sort of based on the link between the aromatic qualities of the food and drink we eat and then the nutritional quality of it and that sort of forging a a reward system that says well every time you eat a peach it's sweet and here's Here's, here's, here's another thing. We're going to make it sort of smell fruity and, and bright, and there's going to be a little bit of acidity in there, and it's going to have this peach aroma, whatever flavor molecules mm. cause or conspire to, to create the aroma of peach. So we are our preferences on flavor are sort of forged by this link between our aromatic preferences and, 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 and sweetness and so on. Yeah, or, or maybe there are no aromatic preferences to begin with. Possibly there's one or two, but I think a starting point is to say, no, it's absolutely all learnt. Mm. Um, apart from the ones that our mother was eating, the carrot milk and the mm. uh, and so on and so forth, garlic and whatever else it might be. Uh, and it's the other way around that we learn that um, that smell yeah, predicts sugar, fat, uh, caffeine, alcohol. Um, and then that smell takes on some of those qualities. This is sort of the amazing thing in a way that about, from some of the gastrophysics is if you think about the smell of vanilla, the smell of uh, of caramel, most people would call those sweet smells. Mm. Oh, this and is great. Course- I'm so glad you got onto this because I've got a long-standing debate with friends about whether or not you can smell sweet. So I'm going to ask <laughs> you to give me the answer. Okay. So, 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 um, uh, and yeah, of course, vanilla pods, when you bite into them, uh, are very bitter. Uh, but we sort of learned through experience that well, that that probably artificial vanilla smell but more often than not normally comes with sweetness maybe an ice yeah. cream and, and then that smell becomes for us sweet um and in a way that none of our other senses kind of do that, that it's smell, association taste on the right taste. Yeah. it just it's like but, becomes such a powerful association yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's an association so they can say okay when i, when I smell vanilla i know i'm going to taste sweetness in a moment or two but beyond that it's also um that the uh the vanilla starts to become sweet itself it starts to smell sweet. And when you add it to something that's not very sweet, by adding that smell of vanilla, it can actually make the thing taste sweeter. Hmm. And, that, so that, and that's purely down to the strength of the association, sort of building like a, an anticipation in the brain, this expectation that it's going to be sweet, even when it isn't. That's right. Um, so our brain, I guess, what it is, is I mean, ultimately, it's your tongue that tells you some of what's in the food we eat, whether it's poisonous and should be ejected because it tastes bitter, uh, uh, it contains energy because it tastes sweet or uh, umami, sort of a protein. Um, so ultimately, you should put everything in our mouth, but that's just kind of a messy business and take too long to stick everything around us in our mouth and see what it tastes like. Hmm. So our brain tries to predict what things are going to be 
taste of what nutritional value they have before um, by based on color, which is why you know pink and red are such powerful uh, uh, cues to sweetness because in sort of fruits mm. uh, in nature, but also in the supermarket, that color very often occurs with sweetness. So I see pink, I'm expecting sweet. And then when I taste something, I can't. you can't turn water into wine by coloring it pinkish red, but you can take a slightly sweet drink and make it appear perceived indistinguishable from an actually sweeter drink because it smells sweet, because it looks sweet. Um, right, so if I color a drink red and make it smell of vanilla, yep. I'm, I'm likely to increase the perception of sweetness of that drink with everyone's drinking it. Providing it's got a bit of sweetness in it already. A little, yes. a little bit. You need to have yeah, a sort a of bit. starting yeah, it'll, point. It'll ramp it up a bit. Um, but, of course, in that case, it becomes a bit of a problem because if you ask people what, what colour is vanilla, <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not red. Creamy colour, probably, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a disconnect there. So yeah. maybe if you give people, they'll be like, well, it looks red, so I thought it was going to taste of uh, no, red fruits and, and it smells of vanilla instead. I'm confused. It's kind of incongruent. So it's a, yeah, a bit of a challenge to get the sort of the right colours, and um, so in some of our things, we you know serve something, we put a, a drink in front of a red screen, not even the red drink, but it's a red screen. We might play some sweet music, uh, have a, add a sweet aroma to it, and suddenly people will rate that drink as five or ten percent sweeter than they did without. When they come to taste it, they'll rate it sweeter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's amazing. And it's like people say, well. It doesn't really taste sweeter. Is it? They're just they're saying that, but you can do you can do sort of the, the the side by side tests and say which of these two drinks is really sweeter, and have people picking the physically less sweet drink that looks sweeter and smells sweeter than the other one. So, in answer to this debate that um, I've been raging with my friends for some time, <laughs> would it, would it be fair to say then that you can't smell sugar, but you can smell sweet? Is that probably yeah. yes? Um, uh, yes. It's a simple answer. Probably you need know, to try and uh, there's lots of work trying to say you know, we've got sort of tastes. We can taste on our tongue sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami, maybe kakumi, maybe metallic, um, and everything else we we could describe as taste or flavour. That's really coming from the nose, the meaty, the creamy, the herbal, the uh, the fruity, the floral. That's all from your nose. Not it's not really tasting, um, but when you try and get pure tastes just to stimulate the tongue pure sucrose or sodium chloride or caffeine, then in fact, very often they they have a hint. They're never quite pure enough. Yeah, to be completely devoid of, of smell. Yeah. Yeah. So while, they, while I think itself, it was 100% pure, you couldn't smell sugar, salt, bitter. Yeah. In fact, they're always a little bit impure and people tend to be remarkably good at actually being able to smell what they shouldn't be able to smell, but it's only the impurities. <laughs> not, it's not really the sugar itself. So you can add these, you know, uh, sweet colour. We do it a lot with you know, wine experts. Give them a, a white wine, colour it pink, so it looks like a rosé. Yeah. And, they, and the experts, the winemakers, the wine critics, the wine writers, they all start spouting off, and, and the social drinkers all start saying, you know, uh, more tropical fruits, more this, that, and the other that wasn't there in the wine when it was purely white, wasn't there in the real rosé. But they're being sort of fooled by the eye because they predict they're going to taste these things. Yeah. And then their brain tries to resolve the difference between what they thought was going to be in the glass, what they're actually tasting. And more often than not, it's what we see dominates. Unless there's such a big disconnect, uh, when your brain says, hold on, that's just not right there. That's I thought mm. it was going to be this, and it's way off. Yeah. I thought it was going to be sweet, and it's salty. And when that happens, you get this kind of a horrible disconnect, this kind of a disconfirmation of expectation, Yes, where, in fact, people say they kind of rebound and go the other way, and it tastes less, less of what you wanted it to taste of than it actually did. 
because consumers say, this is dangerous. It's in my mouth. It could be fooling me. I could be poisoned. What's gone wrong here? Why has my brain got it so wrong? And that's kind of negatively valenced and hence uh, not normally a good place to be. Yeah. So, and presumably there's a way uh, of manipulating the taste of a drink well, the, the flavor perception of the drink, I'm not sure what the right, best terminology is here because I'm not talking about just limited to the, to the mouth. Presumably, there's a way of manipulating the color in order to bring out certain flavor characteristics of the drink. So like for a, a gin and tonic, for example, which depending on the gin and the tonic water might yep. have floral notes or it might have citric notes or it might have mm-hmm. grassy notes or it might have spicy mm-hmm. notes, adjust the flavor slightly to highlight whichever one of those notes you want to highlight, right? Mm-hmm. I, That's yeah. right. Uh, I, 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 and a few years ago, um, was sort of brought in by a, uh, a gin manufacturer who was, uh, thought it'd be a good idea to have a blue gin and a oh, pink yeah. gin. Um, and then was you know getting into all sorts of problems because these consumers were really getting really confused because they saw this pink liquid. They're expecting all of those, I know, pomegranate and mm. red fruit notes, and it wasn't there. It was just the clear gin, but coloured. And for the blue, well, who knows what you're expecting? Was it was it the orange or the or, or, or raspberry, the, uh, the raspberry, or, or something else altogether? Um, so yeah, there can be a challenge there about uh, uh, those sort of predictions. And uh, um, but you can then, I suppose, what's often why, in order to bring out the citrus notes in some gins, then you add the slice of citrus. In order to bring the cucumber note out in another gin, then you uh, add a slice, a few slices of yeah. strips of cucumber. Uh, so you can use the actual thing too. Yeah, sure. So that was in. my next question. Do you? I mean, do you? Th- how how important do you think garnishing is in that respect? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a bartender and I I sort of I create these drinks um, and I and I create the garnish for the drink. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the garnish is sort of designed to be a cue as to what flavors you're going to expect mm-hmm. in the drink, um, as well as a, something pretty. Um, but how how much do you think it does impact the flavor of the drink? Or do you do you think it's... I mean, look, for example, if I served you a steak and chips and put some parsley on the side of the plate, you wouldn't, I don't think, eat the steak and think, oh, this tastes vaguely of parsley. Um, it's got parsley flavors. I'm really getting green grass. I can taste the grass the cow ate. Um, because you would see the parsley next to it and it would feel altogether too contrived to, to think that those two ingredients are re- like one and the same or likely to be the same in your mouth. And I feel the same way about garnishes in that way. I, I know I'm not putting the garnish in my mouth when I'm drinking this drink. It's just sat there. So if I've got rosemary and a gin and tonic, this is the, the crux, this is the question, do you think it tastes more like rosemary, this drink? Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, so on the one hand, it's by having the garnish, that sets the expectations. I could say this drink is very citrus, this drink is very cucumber. As you get the notes mm. of rosemary, I could say those words, and that would bring it out in a you know, wine, fancy wine tasting. They're always telling you what you can taste yeah. in the glass, and suddenly it's there as soon as they name it. By having the visual cue, that does the same job of sort of primary expectations mm. and what we expect to find, we're more likely to be able to find. Uh, if there's a hint of it or something like it there, mm. not if it's just water, yeah. putting the rosemary in. Went, um, but at the same time, I think also there's another way in which um, I'm really interested in this, uh, I mean, how our brains sort of manage to segregate stuff uh, um, and when they combine things. So, you you know, if you uh, I, I give a sort of example from a, a Swiss chef, Denis Martin, he's got like a, a mousse-bouche, just a spoonful of stuff. You stick it in your mouth all in one go. It's a whole dish. And it's got a bit of tuna, a bit of uh, Himalayan pink rock salt, uh, a bit of wasabi, and a, a white chocolate disc. 
Mm. It's all just one mouthful. It's all there in your mouth at the same time. And yet somehow when you taste it, your brain segregates it and you get the wasabi hit. Then you get the melting tuna. Then you get the, the mouth coating of the, um, uh, 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 of the chocolate disc. And your brain somehow manages to keep these things separate in the right way and says that fishy flavor goes with the with that texture, not with the um, mm. the, the. And how do how does, when does our brain do that? And when does it actually sort of falsely put stuff together? Um, so I'm really interested that then when if you stick an aromatic a garnish um, on by around uh, a drink, then does your brain sort of integrate some of the flavors of the garnish with some of the flavors of the drink? Or does it segregate it and says, no, the garnish is the background smell and there's a smell of the drink. Uh, and I think sometimes we can keep them segregated, a bit like, um, was it the rose cocktail uh, from Sicconigliaro, uh, sort of written about a bit, where sort of the, the, the sugar cube and the uh, rose essence dropped in the champagne. And again, in that case, your brain sort of segregates it with a bit of storytelling. Mm. The rose essence is there, that's setting the scene. And then there's my champagne. Uh, and they don't merge, but in other cases, when the, there is probably a hint of the rosemary maybe in your drink uh, or, or the citrus in your gin, then that slice of lemon, I think the aromas from it, I think maybe can add freshness. I think it's going to cue freshness, um, and also probably your brain can't perfectly segregate them, so it's kind of altering the flavour in that way too, mm. maybe. Yeah, no, okay, okay. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would. It's, it's, I can understand it's a contributing factor, as with colour, um, possibly even more so, I would say. But just from my own experience, I, I, you know, I don't have a lab like you do. <laughs> but, um, but I think the power of suggestion, um, it, like a verbal suggestion, uh, I mean by that, is, is really um, a, a big influencer on flavor. I mean, yes, uh, you could put um, you know, a, a sprig of mint in a drink and, say, and, and hand it to someone and perhaps they'll find fresher, more herbal kind of notes in that cocktail. But if you hand someone a cocktail without mint on top, and you're a trustworthy source of information, a bartender, let's say, in a, in a top bar, you know, or perhaps someone you have mm -hmm. a pre-existing relationship with, not mm -hmm. just a complete stranger, you at least look like you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And you say, here's your cocktail. Um, we've used this product here, and you're going to find lots of green herbal minty notes through it. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're a particularly cynical person, if you're invested in that experience and you want to enjoy your evening out in this bar, I, I think that there's there's the potential to experience quite a strong herbal minty flavour, even if mm -hmm. it's not particularly strong in the drink, right? Yeah. So a kind of placebo yeah. effect of, of sorts. Uh, yeah, um, but I think you know you can't you, you, still you can't no matter how trusted uh, your source is, give them a glass of water and they're not going to find it. Yeah, they so there has to be something. Something there. and maybe lots of drinks. It might not be that that thing that you describe. It doesn't have to be in the drink, but just for like the complex drinks, there's so much going on. That in that in all the information your brain's getting, all the flavors that are evolving and stuff going in your nose and in your mouth, in a really complex tasting experience, maybe there's more scope to find something than in a very simple, straightforward taste of water or I give the measurements of cola. That maybe you wouldn't, um, mm. you know, what that thing should taste like. You've got your memory of that taste, uh, and it doesn't change much. It's not very complex, and hence it's maybe harder there to draw people's attention in and, and, and transform their experience than in something that is unusual, unfamiliar. A more complex, um, but I think that, you know, that, that sort of freshness point is, is a really important one because I just finished supervising, co-supervising uh, a guy called Jeremy Rock in uh, Paul Bacou's uh, culinary school in uh, France. Uh, his thesis was all about freshness perception in drinks. 
and so for his PhD defence, they actually had the, the results of his research. He had a couple of bartenders making the ultimate in fresh drinks. Assuming fresh is a good thing, and I think it probably is. But yeah. it, fresh means so many different things in toothpaste, in a drink, yeah. in, a, in, in frozen seafood. Um, and that adding then the garnish, I think, is one of the ways to cue and promote freshness and freshness. People, consumers seem to like, they like a freshly made drink, but they also like maybe the fresh elements um, in a, yeah, in a way that's valued, and hence for that reason alone, you might say add a garnish just to give that fresh feel. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've especially with herbs, I think. Well, no, with anything that is has the potential for spoilage, you don't want a brown piece of lemon, you don't want a floppy, flaccid piece of mint. Um, and I've, I've often thought there's something about, um, in, in terms of indicating freshness, there's something about herbs, um, in particular in drinks that are a really powerful indicator of freshness because the appearance of it suggests that this herb is able to grow and live out of this cocktail that's been prepared. And it suggests that the purity um, and purity freshness, perhaps there's a link there. Um, it suggests that the purity of the drink that, you know, this, this, this cocktail is so freshly prepared, so carefully prepared that even this living plant will thrive happily in it. Of course, it'll die within you know a few hours because it's got mm-hmm. alcohol on it. But for that briefest of moments, it looks like this perfect sort of balance of, of, a, of a human created fresh cocktail and nature sort of existing mm-hmm. as one. Mm-hmm. Um, I might say, well, then you've got to think carefully about which way up your uh, herbs are. Inserted into the, yeah. into the glass. <laughs> so uh, with this uh, chef who was also from the Paul Bacuse, uh, Charles Michel, it, um, together we sort of did an experiment on a dish he'd created, which was a Kandinsky painting turned into a salad uh, based on <laughs> one of the paintings in a Museum of Modern Art in New York, 201. Uh, I, I, but the chef said, I, I had to, the only thing I did differently from the painting itself is it hangs the opposite way up to the way I plate this dish. And the reason why is because there was a slice of... Um, uh, of black mushroom, but he said, as with my chef's eye, that mushroom has to point upwards. As yeah, it yeah. just wouldn't look the same upside down. No. And this will be the same in, in the case of drinks, perhaps. Yeah, look like some corrupted upside down growing mushroom. Dead, yeah. Or, yeah. Well, it, it's a testament to uh, the quality of the chef that he thinks about these kind of things because I think most restaurants, they're on round plates so they can be served any way up you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to colour, because I find this one particularly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any sort of go-to rules of thumb in terms of how to emphasise really sweetness, saltiness, bitterness, umami, um, sourness with colour. So we, we talked about red being a, a you know a powerful in, t- in respect of sweetness. I think we we do uh, in this almost synesthetic way. All of us associate sounds and shapes and colours and textures with tastes. Um, and so for sweet, then from our research, it's sort of a pinkish red, I'd say, or sort of white and red are very powerful cues of sweetness. Uh, sweetness is also very round in shape. So if I'm trying to emphasize sweetness, I'll also use round typeface if I'm on the menu or a round shape for my garnish maybe. Mm. Um, whereas uh, salty, bitter, sour are all angular shapes. Mm. Sour is angular and asymmetric, whereas bitter is angular and symmetric. And we've got all this stuff uh, sort of studied. And then in terms of colors, then for salty, blue and white uh, were the most commonly associated. And if you can get both colours in, two colours seem to be better than one. Mm, okay. For, 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 for sour uh, 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 green, 
But if you can get yellow and green, that you know, green lemon, lemons and lime vegetable, yeah. or it could be limes. Mm. But yellow and green, then it's lemon and lime, and yeah. it has to be sour. And that's what I'm, I'm bitter. Then it is sort of a brownie black. It's a burnt toast. It's dark chocolate. It's um, Guinness. It's uh, yeah, brownie black, and maybe purple as well. Umami. Uh, a little harder to say because most of our participants tend to be from Western countries and they don't really know what umami is. So they can't really bring anything to mind. Uh, and we have yet to do the study in, in, in Japan, say, where I guess everyone has a, mm. a mental image and, and desire for that umami note. Uh, probably so like we have the colors, we have the shapes. Brownie color, right? I would think. Yeah, probably brownie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe round as well. Um, put on the right sort of music. We've got sweet music, we've got sour music, we've got spicy music, we've got creamy music, uh, vanilla, citrus. And the music, so these, do, are they appropriate musics for those taste sensations? Yes. Are they sort of, do they, do they sort of have a connection with the sort of type of taste and the, the place, the, the country or the culture it might have come from? Or is it um, more to do with the musical that, that, instruments themselves and the sounds? Uh, and the sounds, we've got sort of, sort of musical menus of, uh, so uh, for bitter tastes, uh, people associate really low-pitched sounds with bitter. Bitter is dark, it's low-pitched, it's heavy, it's dark colours like black. Uh, sweet is tinkling and high-pitched, more piano uh clarinet for a bit of uh acidity also high pitched uh, and sour we've got dissonant and we've got this music over here with the pitch the instrument whether it's the roughness of the music the ambitus and i'm not a musician but um uh the um tempo and all of these things sort of listed out and then you can either try and pick music off the shelf that has those properties piano tinkling high pitch okay i've got i don't know mike holdfield tubular bells or some, some carnival of the animals or something. Uh, or increasingly we're sort of working with sound designers and uh, and uh, composers uh, to actually create music specifically for a taste or a, a drink experience. So that as you know, you, t- you taste a drink or, or eat a chocolate or something, you have like a, a flavor journey. And we can map that out, ask people, just tell me every second or every five seconds, what are you getting now? Maybe it starts off sweet, but then goes a bit astringent and then ends on a, a sour note um, and the floral things kick in. And for each of those elements in a taste, we can then match the right instrument, put it all together, uh, and then have that soundscape while you're tasting and mm. sort of create this thing. And just because we're so difficult, we find it so hard to structure our thoughts about what we're tasting, to describe them because it's so complex, we don't have the words for smells and tastes, really. Uh, having sort of a musical accompaniment can sort of help structure. Yeah. So sometimes we'll say, okay, whenever you hear the harps, that's candied orange. Uh, whenever you um, hear this other instrument, that's ginger biscuits. And then we can make musical compositions, and whenever you hear the harp, you suddenly think, okay, candied orange. And then you, just like when, I, when, the, when, they, when the wine expert prompts you, you're going to taste this, the mintiness. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you can do it in this almost synesthetic way, but sort of draw your attention to something through 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 music and where this comes from. Why is bitter low pitch? Hmm. No one knows. Um, I've got my I've got my just so story, uh, which is I bet it's universal that because if you look at newborn babies, um, if you stick a sweet taste on the tongue of a newborn baby, it'll go, it will lick to ingest the calories for growth. Put a bitter taste on a newborn baby's tongue. 
and the tongue will go out and down, eject. We're born to think bitter is potentially bit, uh, poisonous. Yeah. And so um, if you think about the sort of sounds babies make with their tongues out and down, slightly different in pitch, <laughs> and we'll all do that. And our brain just picks up these correlations that, you know, that green is sour, that red is sweet in nature, that babies make sounds with bitter taste and sounds with sweet taste. And chimps do that, humans do that, rats do that. Um, it's everywhere in the world. It's just a statistic of nature, a link between taste and sound. And it's for that reason, maybe, that, that sweet tastes are high-pitched. Um, we, one of the bars I used to um, own in London called the Worship Street Whistling Shop, we had a private dining It's a cocktail bar, but we had a private dining room for drinking. And uh, this was going back about eight or nine years. And back then, I was, I was really into this idea of flavor perception and what um, triggers our appreciation of flavor and how they all link up. And we created a series of events in this room um, themed around uh, spirits history. So we did a history of rum, we did a history of vodka, and we did a history of whiskey. And it was like a history of rum in six drinks. And each time you were served a new drink, the room would transform around you. So we had lighting that we could control. We had a projector that displayed images and video. We had a, an aroma system that blasted smells into the room. So, for example, when uh, about halfway through the rum one, you would be... Uh, you'd find yourself on a, on board a ship, like a pirate ship. Mm. You'd be served grog. You'd have this bartender come in dressed as a sailor. We we got the aroma of like cordite, like gunpowder kind of. Smell. I've got some of that right here. Oh, have you? <laughs> you sent me from a uh, sprayed over a drink. Oh, nice. Um, so we blow, <laughs> blew the aroma of cordite in, and then yeah. on the videos we had. The, we managed to find some stock video of this, uh, the bow of a ship just kind of rocking. And then we got mm -hmm. seagull noises and, and yep. the splashing of the sea and all of this sort of thing. But I remember specifically one night, one of the women who was in there, um, I was talking and introducing the drink and describing what like Navy life was like for sailors um, and, and talking about the cocktail itself. And she said, sorry, excuse me, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. And she came back from the bathroom five, 10 minutes later, and she said she'd felt seasick. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, wow, um, you know, sorry for that. I do apologize, but um, that's, it's amazing that we've managed to make you seasick in a basement in Shoreditch. <laughs> yes, I think I, no, that's probably about, um, see, that was about eight or nine years ago, and I think it was about sort of 2013 when uh, I was involved in the uh, Singleton Sensorium. Mm. Yes, we have, uh, we, uh, yeah. And I think actually we actually came to um, the Whistling Stop for the photo shoot after the... Uh, ah, okay. On the press day, in yeah. fact, um, remember, and yeah, and that was for me. That was, that was my sort of first experience of of how much the environment could change. Yeah, we the did taste of a drink. We we well, I remember when the Singleton Sensorium was being put together, and we had a couple of people involved in it come and sit through our our multi sensory session to see what we were doing yeah. and everything. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. We we stopped doing it because it was just so much hard work to put into it, and because it was only in groups of six. Yep. You know, if we'd had more budget and a bigger space, I guess we could have turned it into like a secret cinema type experience mm -hmm. and, and really mm -hmm. gone to town on it. But we've never yep. really been an events company. It's been, it's bars, you know. Yep. And I guess, uh, I guess that's sort of that, that idea of the sort of multi-centre experientials obviously doing very well in, in, the, in the high end of uh, fine dining mm. where you can charge 1,500 yeah, euros exactly. a night for, yeah. for the thing. Um, but also, I guess that was out of the blue in the... Uh, Barclay Hotel in London. Okay, yeah. about a year and a half had a only for four people uh, the experience where we, the, again more high tech lighting, music, sense, temperature could all change to match the series of drinks prepared for you. 
but that, I think that closed down, so it wasn't sustainable. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a shame. yeah. And speaking of blue, I remember we we're just talking about um, you know expectation of what something's going to taste like blueness. I remember once I was messing about with tomato juice and clarifying it, um, which is an interesting experiment in itself to see how tomato-y tomato juice tastes when it's clear or very nearly clear. Um, but to sort of as an extension of that, we we started putting food colorings in it to see how it tasted you know, with green food coloring, with blue food coloring. And I remember distinctly serving it to, uh, serving a blue one to someone once. I was a member of the team, actually. And she had no idea about what I'd been up to. I just gave her this blue drink to taste. Um, very trusting, my team, because they were often being handed <laughs> things. <laughs> and I said, what does it taste like? And she smelt it, she tasted it, and she just went, I don't know, like washing detergent? And I was like, wow, that's incredible. The only blue liquid you're sort of day-to-day familiar with, and you've linked it straight to that, even though it, I, I, mean, I don't think washing detergent has tomato flavor in it. Um, <laughs> they don't really have any connection with one another. And that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect someone to say, oh, well, it's obviously tomato, it's just colored blue. But to go so far away from a food that you eat every single day to a washing detergent was amazing to me. And I, and I guess, so for, for me, the, the blue is sort of an interesting one because... It was, it's, given how few blue foods there are, it's kind of nearly only added as a colouring, and hence there's no. It's sort of entirely arbitrary what what taste blue has, whereas all the other colours we could think of in a drink or a dish, they all have meaning. They all have they're all concretely the colour of stuff yes. that we eat that has flavours. Yes. Whereas blue is different, and it's probably the only colour that's different. Yes, and that it's not tied to anything. Yeah, and hence it's arbitrary whether it's uh, orange or, or, or raspberry. Um, and for that, that, for that sense, makes it you know, more intre- very interesting color to play with, uh, and it is that sort of if people can be misdirected to begin with, then they find themselves going down all this different trajectory of what it could be. I mean, like the expert wine tasters, as soon as you serve them the white wine colored rose or red, they see they see the color that sets a certain train of thought in mind. Okay, it's red, therefore it must be A or B. Uh, it's this shade of red, therefore it must be this. And once they've started down that path, it's almost very difficult to come back and say no. Let's just check my very first assumption that it was red wine. Because you're already invested in it being a particular thing. And then if you get nowhere, because uh, I've never had something that's blue that tastes of tomato before, yeah, then I guess you, I guess your, your assistant probably doesn't drink much um, uh, washing up liquid either. So <laughs> that's <just> true. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it. Um, so just thinking a little bit about this sort of idea of learning everything we know about flavor after we come out of the womb or perhaps a little bit when we're in there is there are there any is there any sort of genetic um uh influence over how we experience flavor are there certain cultures or people that have you know for example like a higher tolerance of sweetness they need more of it or umami appreciation mm-hmm. uh, definitely there are um Individual differences, so genetically determined ones. Um, probably most often talked about is whether people are super tasters or non-tasters, uh, which expresses itself most obviously in um, super tasters having a much stronger response to bitterness, uh, which might be bitterness in alcohol, but also in cruciferous vegetables, the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts, mm. the sort of famous examples thereof. Um, and the non-tasters not, not getting that bitterness at all. Um so that's there. Um, there's also a separate, probably a third of the population who are sweet likers, a third who are sweet neutral, um, and the rest who are sweet dislike, I think. Or, but so again, that's uh, in some of our recent work we've just been doing, 
it very clearly comes across that the sweet likers in the population are going for a particular kind of drink. Mm. Uh, are they geographically organised, or is it? Um, so those genetic then taste differences um, are more or less common in different cultures, countries. Um, so my sort of anecdote is that uh, I used to work on toothpaste. Um, and toothpaste had magnesium in it, I think, which tastes very bitter uh, to a super taster. Uh, and when this toothpaste that had been very successful in Europe was launched in India, it flopped, and they couldn't figure out why, because it worked so well in Europe. And then it figured out there were more super tasters in the population in India, and hence the more people who found it bitter and just wouldn't buy it. Mm. Then, um, and I think people have just been doing like a tracing along the Silk Road, doing the genetic profiling to look for taster status and find differences in different countries there so that, that varies but I, I sort of wonder and that makes you think well okay why are we giving everyone the same drink if we live in such different taste worlds um i think maybe part of the answer is we sort of adapt to the world we find ourselves in um that's part of it and also maybe it's the genetic differences in smell that are more important here mm. because you know if you if, look for a number um people will say 75 to 95 percent of what you think you're tasting you're actually smelling. Yes. And if that's the case, if most of what you're tasting is coming from the nose, then it's genetic differences here we should be really interested in. Mm. And for that, it seems like we are, every one of us is anosmic or unable to smell something right. or some things. It differs between people. Um, and hence, I think it's 1% of the population who can't smell violet or, or vanilla, one of those. Uh, maybe the barnyard. Um, God, vanilla. Without no, vanilla, that would be a bit depressing, wouldn't it? Yeah. You're missing out on that one. Yeah, and there are probably, and there are probably other you know, um, volatile compounds that some of us can't smell, um, but they don't have a name or they're not uniquely attached to one thing. But hence, you know, why, why people come back about the same drink, saying such different things, is probably in part these genetic differences. Mm. Um, uh, and it's probably the smell ones that are maybe more uh, relevant to the total picture, but which it's sort of bizarre. You think that um, uh, it would be strange if we all got the same shoes because our feet are different sizes. And if our taste world is so different, one person to the next, why do they always give us the same stuff? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it's a scope there for personalization that I've come to your cocktail bar, you're going to genetically profile me or give me a tasting strip to see if I'm a super taster or not, yeah. and then take me on a particular journey of cocktails uh, that's designed for my my own personal palate hmm. you're obviously a sweet 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 liker therefore d- down this path we go are you a sweet liker no <laughs> <laughs> uh, um yeah because I, I i mean I, when i travel around i often find that different countries have you know a different usually a different take on sweetness you go to like the middle mm-hmm. east for example and they really like yeah. sweet drinks there but then i guess a lot of that is culturally learned as opposed to genetically or maybe a bit of both uh, yep uh, and temperature related, maybe atmosphere yeah. uh, related too, uh, and also of course, don't forget this is where we come back to this: the sweet smell thing is so important because in different cultures, uh, different aromas smell sweet or salty yes. or bitter or sour. So some of the sweetness that uh, uh, a Western uh, uh, drinker might get if you had a, that vanilla note or cinnamon in another culture, another country. That might be a salty smell mm. or a bitter smell instead, and hence when the people say you know, this drink tastes really sweet to me, people from another culture may may disagree. But it's not really about the taste; 
it's about the smell that's come to be associated with that taste. Yes, and that and that, I've heard that explaining some of the uh, differences between uh, Japanese and uh, and uh, uh, European sort of responses to whiskies um, and sort of salty notes therein that some get and some don't. And maybe it's all about not about taste of salt, it's about the smell of salt. Yeah, isn't there something in that with um, mint and toothpaste that we sort of associate the sweetness that you get from toothpaste although it's not got sugar in it's got sweeteners in right and like and then you go to chewing gum and if, if you run out of sugar in your chewing gum then you it stops tasting minty because you need that there to sort of create that effect and, and, and this, this is what I, I use a lot of this example and it come I think originally from tony blake who's like a flavor i, I know tony blake yeah, yeah yeah okay yeah. so his one that he was growing up in the second world war uh when there was you know, no supplies of chewing gum at all so it was a trick that they were taught to school kids or something like that to take the chewing gum and then roll it in icing sugar. Yeah. And miraculously, the minty aroma would come back. And that, that idea has been proven to be correct by um, Andy Taylor in Nottingham, just retired flavor chemist who's done the stuff. And there's amazing stuff where if, if I have like a smell machine to give you smells in your nose and a taste machine to give you taste on your tongue separate, then if I start with you know banana aroma and sweetness on the tongue, uh, if I turn off the banana aroma but leave the sugar going on your tongue, it still smells of banana. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But if I turn the sugar off, believe the banana aroma, Doesn't. it disappears. Yeah. Even though the banana aroma is all there. That's strange, uh, isn't it? Because that's yeah. it's like there's a relationship there, but it doesn't work. This, well, it does work the same expect? way both ways around. It should be, it should be, what it should be is that you, you, you know, you need the sweetness for both, but not necessarily the banana, but it, you, they actually both, no, wait a second. You do need, <laughs> you need the sweetness to get the banana. Yes. Uh, you don't need the banana to get the banana. That's madness. Well, you had to have, that. You had to have the banana to begin with, but then you can take it away. And um, maybe it makes sense. So if you think about, um, so I think one of the really interesting things is when when we have, think about the flavor of a, a cocktail, say, then how does that actually happen? Uh, well, I put the drink in my mouth. Well, first I sniff it, maybe. I look at it. I've got some expectations of flavor. Then I, then I take a sip and it's there on my tongue. That can only give me taste to begin with. And then some of the air gets pushed out of the back of my mouth into the nose and you get this retronasal smell, yeah. and that's where all the all, all the milled tea and the and the banana and everything else comes through. But that's happening a few milliseconds or seconds later, and then those aromas from my mouth, all the volatile stuff, doesn't constantly go from my mouth into my nose. It's kind of pulsed out only when I'm swallowing and maybe when I'm chewing. So in between those pulses of aroma, there's nothing. Mm. It's empty, and yet that's not the way it seems to us. No, it's constant. Our brain fills in the gaps. It's constant, yeah. Constant, yeah. So maybe the same thing's happening here with, you know, in the lab when we turn the banana aroma off. That's kind of imitating what it's like actually for us in a drinking that experience. It does make sense in between all, exhalations. Yeah, sort of yeah. simulate that. Yeah, because that's the other one with the difference between orthonasal and retronasal smells. Yep. So orthonasal in, retronasal out. Out. Um, if, if, I, if I put sugar on your tongue and then spread banana paste on your top lip, that, that it wouldn't taste like banana, right? But as soon as you put the banana, banana aroma coming out the other way, out of your nose. Um, um, no, actually, this is what I'm just writing about at the moment, which is you're, you're right that if you're just thinking logically about how this should work, the sweet taste in my mouth should only be combined with the retronasal, with the stuff coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Because that's all coming from the same flavor object here. Yes. It would make no sense for an ambient smell out there to be combined with the sweet taste in my mouth. Yes. But it, it is. It is. Uh, yeah, it shouldn't be. <laughs> I'll have to be going back and reading all the, all the original papers because everyone sort of reports it, misreports it. 
and I've misreported it in the past. Is this, is this quite course, new science then? That... Um, no, old. Uh, um, so in 2001, this kind of famous paper from the Monell Chemical Senses Lab, Pam Dalton did the study with um, benzaldehyde, so cherry almond aroma, um, and uh, sub, uh, like a so small amount of sweetness on the tongue, you couldn't tell it was there. And she just gave people two bottles to sniff. Which of these two bottles has the cherry almond aroma? Uh, and then lowers the amount in the bottles until you can't tell which bottle has it anymore. Mm. Gets a threshold. And in that case, you're, the, the almond smell is coming from outside, from the bottles you're holding in your hands. But the sweetness is on yeah, your tongue. That's crazy. And in that very first case, already there, our brain, the brains of the participants were combining those two things to make the, the flavour seem much stronger. Actually, in the act of drinking... I'm sort of smelling orthonasally the drink in front of me. I'm retronasally pulsing out the same drink. Well, yeah, that was my next question. I mean, if you if you inhale a strong aroma um, and then presumably exhale it back out, does it go anywhere? I mean, it's got to pass olfactory epithelium, right? This is the key kind of point in the nose, which yeah. sort of processes the aroma molecules and sends it up to the brain. I mean, I always assumed that like there's a switch that under, your brain understands whether you're going in or out with your breath. It constantly toggles it on and off and combines it with something that's in the mouth if there's something there. Mm. But uh, it, could, it could be, right, that you, if I s smell a, uh, you know, a strong enough aroma, it's probably going to come back out again when I breathe out, right? Yep, yep. So I think that's the emerging science now is that we kind of, we miss, why do we all confuse smell and taste? Why do we all think we can taste fruity and floral? Um, whereas our brain's playing tricks, it's taking those smells and gluing them with what's happening in the mouth. I mean, I smell it with my nose and I taste it on my tongue, so I kind of pull it apart, but in fact, the flavorful thing is all residing in my mouth, so it, my brain's doing a good job in the end to kind of glue it all back together yeah. and put it in the right place. And and sort of locate the experience in the mouth, not the nose, yep. right? Even though, yep. like you say, most of it's going on up in the yep. nose. So then there's got to be some fun to be had. Um, so I was wondering... Wouldn't it be nice if you could take flavour out of the mouth? Uh, if I could, if I could, if I could taste with my fingertip. Mm. Um, I think, uh, yeah. So that's one of my sort of pet projects to think. If we know how the brain combines stuff, surely we could trick it. And I've seen stuff where you know, if you if you um, uh, put some garlic cloves in a bag and tie it to your foot, thirty minutes later you can taste the garlic. But it's actually it's actually in your mouth, I suppose, even though it's. It's coming through your foot, apparently. I'm imagining um, you know, a restaurant experience where you're handed two plates of food, one of them to put in your mouth and the other one to sort of scrunch up in your hand at the same time, <laughs> mash it together, <laughs> see if you can redirect the experience to your hand. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the sort of key taste sensation, salt, sweet, sour, bitter, umami. And then you also mentioned maybe curcumin, maybe metallic. Where are we at with these in terms of classifying them as tastes or sensations or and i suppose fatty acid would be the other mm -hmm. one that's so according to um is it beth stuckey who's like written a book in 2012 like food industry book tastes matters i think she calls it oh yeah I'm not, uh, and she says there's maybe the scientists won't come on record but I, all my 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 flavor flavor scientist colleagues some of them say there's as many as 24 different basic tastes well um uh, the four we definitely agree, umami seems to be there now. Uh, fatty acid taste is interesting. I think you can discriminate which of two drinks has fatty acid without being having any sensation to go with it. You sort of know it's like a blind tasting yeah. in some way. So it's kind of a taste, but not. Uh, Metallic's one that's really been interesting to me, um, uh, uh, both 
from a sort of clinical practical perspective um and people can't decide whether metallics a taste a smell a flavor both all of the time which metal uh, and um yeah we've been trying to so it's done a project on that blocking people's noses and so on to see whether they can tell um so that's probably probably both <laughs> or all three it seems um, it feels to me so- like uh, like chili metallic then there, there, and it's, this is probably shows you know how I'm, I'm not poorly I'm poorly defining taste, but it seems to me that they're more like a sensation, like a nervous reaction, and I guess taste is too. But they seem to be more on the spectrum of pain or uh, you know heat or something like that, rather than sour, sweet, bitter, which seems so kind of centralized around a sensation on the tongue itself. Do you know what I'm saying? Um. I could agree with that for uh, chili, mm. sort of heat. Um, but then when, when you get when you give people like umami, just uh, monosodium glutamate in, uh, in water, nothing else, then uh, even umami is kind of an odd one because by itself it's not very pleasant. Mm. And it should be pleasant because it's sort of protein and stuff we need. Um, and, and, and what's the sensation like at, at low threshold, near low intensity? It's kind of like salty, but it's sort of more like a mouth-filling sensation yes, than anything else yes. I'd describe it as. Um, and then you get to the kokumi, which seems to sort of multiply stuff with the umami, from what I've read. Uh, and again, it's a more mouth-filling sensation. Um, and the metallic, I want to say, I think I can definitely, you can sort of definitely sort of smell metallic sometimes without tasting yeah. anything. But you can also, there's also a taste of metallic. Have you ever tried miracle fruit? Yes. That's weird stuff, eh? Do you want to give it a bit of explanation? Okay. Um, so a miracle fruit or the miracle pill or berry uh, is um, the fruit itself is an African fruit. looks a little bit like a coffee cherry from what I've seen. Um, and when you taste it, um, mostly we use the pills. You can buy over Amazon. Nothing happens. But then after some number of minutes, when you taste something sour like a slice of lemon, uh, it suddenly tastes sweet. Um and so that's kind of a good party trick. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's sort of. It, 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 um, and it's not, of course, that the lemon tastes anymore. It just sort of blocks the sour receptor, so you can't taste the sour. So you just taste the intrinsic sweetness. Um, but uh, and people have thought, well, wouldn't this be a great you know, solution for diabetes or something to make things taste sweet without the sugar? It's never come to market, as far as I can tell. And also, whenever we tried it, we, it's sort of a fun demo. It has to be the last thing you do in a, mm. in a tasting menu mm. or an evening because it spoils everything thereafter. Mm. Uh, in the end, it seems to be sort of a nice party trick, but it it never improves an experience I've come across. Mm. I often thought it would be a good strategy for cocktail competitions. So if you can, if you're fortunate enough to be first on, you could serve the judges a drink um, <laughs> and then give them a little sort of after shot yeah, of sabotage. miracle fu- infusion without telling them, of course. And yeah. then, you know, they work their way through the rest of the competitors and find that all the drinks are in balance and you, you win the trophy. <laughs> yes, genius. Evil genius. Um, and I think but I sort of wonder whether this, the one way I could see it being used is, so now whenever it's delivered, you know that you're eating the miracle fruit. So I imagined if you could, like, coat it on a lolly, without, and the lolly's about something else altogether, they have this lolly, you don't realise you've tasted it, then your taste buds are transformed and then I turn on the pink light, yeah. and I can convince you it's the lighting that's doing it all. Yeah, and you're none the wiser. So it's like a misdirect that people wouldn't know how this thing's happening to them. Yeah, it's, that that would be interesting. It's so funny the way that you can kind of tangle people's minds up in all these different cues. 
that are just purely built out of our own learned experiences and assumptions about the way things should or shouldn't be. And it's really fascinating. A um, couple more questions for you. Um, how, how do you think sort of price and perceived value factor into flavor appreciation? Because I've seen these studies in the past where, you know, people are handed expensive wine versus cheap wine and they're their appreciation of its quality improves dramatically once they're told that it's an expensive bottle. Um, I sort of answered my own question there, but what are your experiences of this? So um, there have been a few famous studies. Uh, one of my colleagues in France, one of the business schools there with um, the brain scanning of um, uh, wines. I think people are told beforehand what they're about to taste rather than after. Mm. That's an interesting question, whether it matters before or after. Can a price later in the day change your taste experience or does it have to be set before? I think it has to be set before. Um, and I've heard the response from some of the audiences to her presentation definitely does change what people say. Uh, that, that same $10 wine, uh, if you tell people it's $90 versus $5, they rate it very differently. Mm. And it's not just they're saying it's better. If you look in their brains at the sort of pleasure areas and the reward areas, like the orbitofrontal cortex just between the eyes and back a little bit, um, that's lighting up much more. We've done it with champagnes, with um, got eight, well, seven, eight sparkling wines, seven champagnes, and one English um, uh, from you know, fifteen to four hundred and fifty pounds a bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, with experts, the people who write the books about champagne, and um, yeah, they, there isn't really a correlation between price and liking or quality. But then again. In some cases, maybe it's it's more sophisticated and nuanced than, than much of the popular press makes it sound like. Just tell people it's expensive and it'll taste better. That very often, I suppose, when we, when we pay more for something, maybe it's about the history, the provenance. Maybe it's about aging potential. Mm. Uh, we're not just paying more for a, a better taste. Mm. There's lots of other things going on there, too. If you, think, if you get it in your head, I'm sure this is going to be an X. Even if I said nothing to you. Yeah. We're always, you know, trying to imagine, trying to guess yeah. what it is. And once we get down that direction, one particular direction, you keep going and saying, "Yes, it's maybe it's not a very typical example of a." Yeah, well, this is the. I guess this is my point. I mean, if you're, if you can, I can find your cognac or rum that is very similar to te- in taste to a whiskey, um, and and vice versa, all on all respects. But if you're going to take prototypical examples of those categories, the whiskeys, if it's if it's typical whether it's blend or malt, there's likely to be a little bit of smoke in there, really. You know, a lot of blends have a bit of smoke in there. That would be a distinguishing feature of the whiskey. Um, if it's a typical rum, I might expect to have more, uh, first of all, possible, well, again, there is no such thing as a typical rum, <laughs> by the way, because it's produced in so many different countries in different ways. But let's say a typical Jamaican rum, I would expect it to have, you know, high estery, fruity, kind of elements to it that I would be surprised to find in a whiskey, less surprised to find in a cognac, but, you know, and then, yeah, with cognac, it would have its, those sort of typical qualities that I would expect, that being sort of fruitiness, a little bit of, you know, grassy, that whiny kind of, but then maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's just, maybe that I would fall foul to this whole thing because those are the assumptions <laughs> I've made because I know what I'm drinking all the time and I find those things in those products. What about what about naming um, and how how that can influence? Because it's, it's one of the great things about cocktails is that you get to come up with a weird name for it. And chefs don't have so much creative freedom in this respect. I mean, they do. You know, some restaurants will come up with some pretty wacky names, but the most for the most part, it's 
you know, it, it's it's the naming um, sort of format is based on sort of pre-existing dishes all the time, isn't it? Whereas with bars, we can be fairly poetic and creative in the naming, yeah. and even you know, mm. it can be fun and funny. Yep, I think I've sort of. Um written a couple of years ago for one of the uh, cocktail magazines about the the naming and things I say in fact a lot of what you see the molecular modernist chefs doing these days uh, those in the bar world have been doing for decades in cocktails for one thing you know fancy funny naming that was there first in cocktails probably before it was there in restaurant contemporary restaurant uh, dish naming think about you know matching the receptacle to the thing you're serving well the chefs have only been using American round white plates for decades Whereas cocktail makers think very carefully about the shape of, and size of the glass, um, use of you know surprising, bright, unusual colours. Again, cocktail makers were there first before some Blumenthal's of this world. I think were, and others were starting to to, to deconstruct and change the colour of things. So I think you have definitely more fun in the naming um, of uh, of the drinks and uh, doing some stuff on on honey at the minute, and then thinking about how you can almost by the speech sounds you include in a name or a description or a brand, how you can almost draw the person who's saying that name, their attention somewhere in the mouth, the front of the mouth, the back of the mouth, the throat. Um, and then if your product happens to stimulate the same bits, huh. then you're, then you're winning. You're sort of almost subliminally communicating. So there's, there is a sort of scientific approach that's, that's coming in more for the big brands. And yeah, the, that the sounds like brands, something. Course, if, you've, but could be, if you've got a big brand and you you really want to sort of i don't know hammer home this idea this brand being this perfectly formed entity then you know you you, you assess the flavor of it how it makes people feel lots and lots of like testing and then does that develop a name based on that that harmonizes uh, and is reflective of that taste experience um you mentioned earlier about weight um and I know like weight of cutlery, weight of plates, you know, suggests um, high quality. Um, do you think that translates into glassware as well? Because the, the, the reason I ask um, is that there's a, you know, there's a bit of a trend for sort of light, dainty glassware or Japan, you know, a lot of these Japanese highball style glasses are probably as physically thin gla as glass can be without being, you know, a failure of a vessel. Um, and yet, you know, they seem to, convey quality with there's other factors of course good quality ice and the drink and the the, the, the trusted bartender but they're like glassware yep um so i think definitely in lots of cases adding weight uh associated with quality be it the wine bottle the weight of your cutlery or the glassware i was just reading about um david munoz when he was in london with the uh, uh, street xo in 2016 um with his pop-up there, and he was serving a drink, and the, the, from the press reports, it was a, a gin and um, uh, lavender, was it, or juniper uh, cocktail, uh, uh, but served from a, a glass so heavy you could almost hardly lift it up. I guess they did lift it up, but but so the, the weight was there. And when we do it, um, you know, if we put a little thirty gram weight on the bottom of a can of of cola or a bottom of a box of chocolates, and say, "Here's can or the the box of chocolates, open it, take a chocolate or a sip, tell me about it." That small amount of weight really does again and again increase what people say, and it probably both it can increase um, uh, aroma intensity, interesting, um, but also quality. 
But of course, you're right. Some t- is it always true that heavy is better? Well, no. What about fancy wine glasses? Aren't they light? What about uh, uh, bone china teacups? Mm. Um, so maybe there are a few exceptions to the rule, but by and large, uh, heavier is better. Could it just be um, association of of the quality of the service wear? So bone china expensive, thin glass difficult to make, therefore expensive. So weight is important where it is. Uh, connected with the cost of producing the item, heavier cutlery costs more to make because there's more of it, right? But where the where the material, the product, whether the material the vessel is made from is expensive to make because it's thin, you therefore associate that with high high quality, therefore better experience. Um, could be sometimes, and yet uh, reminded of uh, when Concorde was still flying. Example there, the cutlery that every gram counts for this uh, sonic flight. <laughs> yeah. And some designers in the UK were commissioned to make some ultralight cutlery. So they made some beautifully designed titanium stuff just for Concorde. Um, but it never got launched because people didn't like it. Mm-hmm. It was too light. Yeah. Because a heavy pint glass, you know, that we get in the UK, these handled, dimpled pint glasses, they're quite heavy. But I would say that they indicate a sort of i mean i like them for some nostalgic effect but on for the most people i think they would find more value in a lightweight sort of more continental lighter beer glass um well we've done we've done a study actually with them adding a little weight to the bottom of beer glasses and they find them uh two straight-sided ones adding a little weight does increase interesting Something Maybe it's the handle um, then. Is the hat because the handle versus gripping the glass is going to have a yeah. difference? Uh, but yeah, but, uh, then there's probably all sorts of stuff going on there about also that uh, I don't know the name for the indentation on the sort of almost straight sided glass. Mm. Your pinches uh, two thirds of the way. Up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the what the What's that doing there? <laughs> is it so you don't slip out of your hand, or does it actually make the liquid flow differently mm. so more volatiles released? Um, but. Yeah, of course, then we get to, to Belgium uh, and there about suddenly every beard's got its own glass yes. shape. So some of this must be just culturally conditioned, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but that, that heavy, better, in so many cases, holds true. I, I think like one thing from talking to you today that I've sort of learned is that you know when we, when we take a sip of a drink, there's so much going on than just the liquid in that glass there are so many mm-hmm. factors playing into it that we have learned and 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 sort of kept close to us over the years and built upon and and then there's the environment and the music lighting everything and it, i think for for anyone listening to this and pretty much everyone listening to this will work in bars it's just so, there's so much material there to work with so many ways to explore how we can manipulate flavor perception to our guests in fun ways um that uh you know so you're, you're you know it's been a really enlightening conversation yeah, I've, got, I've got all my, my own notes here as well of to... <laughs> <laughs> good stuff well look charles thanks so much for your time this has been a long podcast most possibly our longest today and i i could have gone on longer but i'm, I'm wary for your time uh, and <laughs> my own you cut it all down to five minutes will you, in the end? <laughs> um thanks so much for coming on and um well hopefully we'll, we'll meet up for a drink at some point um mm. in in london maybe or in oxford and uh, we can spend a bit of time assessing the various variables that are impacting our perception of its flavor (laughs) or maybe just enjoy it.
<laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. Follow and subscribe now for more episodes and to rate this podcast. You can also dive into previous episodes featuring conversations between myself and industry experts covering a whole range of interesting topics. 